suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned. Some seem to have multiple lifespans. A few were once thought to be extinct in the region. Others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch question and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello there, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, 7th of June, Tuesday night, Origins on tomorrow night. Um, the podcast, we talk about news and politics, sex and religion. I, of course, am Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist, with me every second week, as always, Shay the Subversive. Good evening. And Jay the Tech Guy. Evening all. Right. So this week, normal panel discussion where we look at what's happened over the previous two weeks, um, have a chat about it, try and work it out, try and formulate some ideas about what's going on in the world, whether it's good or bad. and um, and, and plot um, the rise, continued rise of civilization. Uh, if you're in the chat room, say hello. Dom said hello already. Good on you, Dom. And um, so on the agenda, we're going to talk about the interest rates. We're going to talk about um, gas, Queensland Police Union, Qantas, a whole bunch of different things, Peter Dutton. So we'll kick off, see what rabbit holes we end up down. If you're in the chat room, say hello, and we'll try and introduce your comments and, um, well, Shay, just before we started on air, I said, oh, given that the interest rate has come out, we'll talk about that first up. And you said, oh, yes, yes, cost of living, everyone's talking about it. But you sort of said it in a way as if, as if it was a bit of a beat up and, or, or I don't know, what, were you saying anything? Did him, were we getting a backhanded sort of comment there? No, it really is all anybody can talk about. It's yeah, right. all over my news feed. It's you know in the in the cafes. There's right. a lot of talk about it at work. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, no, affecting everyone. Yep. So surely, well, I think I put on the title of the podcast. Surely this signifies the end of the property bubble. I would have thought. I mean, it's just been waiting for some little event to come along and, and prick it, and an interest rate rise is what normally pricks a balloon like this. So you would think like people who are looking to buy a house now who might have been prepared to go the extra bit of money are now just going to hold off and say, oh, I'll hang back because you never know, might drop uh, 10 or 15% over the next year or two. You never know. The sort of There must be a feeling that it's, it's beyond its peak and it'd be going down a bit now particularly in, say, Sydney or Perth, maybe Brisbane is such a strong market, but uh, you would think. Um, Apple were trying to sell me on one of their premium news feeds mm -hmm. that this is the one capital where prices aren't going down, and I suspect it's Brisbane. Right, yeah. If there was one that was going to hang on, unfortunately, it probably is Brisbane. So, um, so um, half a percent. If you've got a $500,000 loan, that's an extra $133 a month. 
if you've got a million dollar loan, first off, what are you doing with a million dollar loan? <laughs> Unless you're doing really well, hopefully, uh, extra two hundred and sixty five dollars a month. Um, but I saw on the news tonight that an iceberg lettuce is ten dollars, eleven dollars in some places. So, yeah, um, the the rains have really screwed up the growing areas. Yep. The industry I'm in, art supplies, people are putting price rises at a wholesale level everywhere of 5 and 10% and have been and there's more in the way. I mean, definitely prices are going up. Inflation figure will show that as it comes in and, you know, this is a normal thing. It's actually a healthy thing for an economy to have an interest, you know, an inflation rate of 3%. That's what the Reserve Bank is trying to create here. The difficulty is that because of the financial crisis in 2008 and then because of the pandemic, our government, well, our central banks have just flooded um, money onto the market, which is cheap money means people borrow to buy assets. So with everybody borrowing to buy assets, prices of assets, property or shares, Increase because mm. you've got the cheap money and what are you going to do with the money? You're not going to put it in the bank because you don't get any interest. So this flood of cheap money over the last 14 years has, has just raised asset prices beyond where they should be. So, so you know, the, the inflation and the interest rates are still below where they should be, but the problem is an overheated, overinflated asset bubble that we're now going to pay the price for, I think. Um, that's the difficulty. So, you know, um, one, one of the things about this is, like, central banks determine monetary policy. They're the ones who actually said, we're going to print money. And they're the ones who set the cash rate, which then gets passed on through the banks to the interest rates. We don't elect these guys. Like, mm. And I don't know that it's such a great idea to have unelected people running something as essential as money supply. To me, our politicians can throw up their hands and go, well, well don't blame us, blame the, those guys over there, or we've begged them to do something about it and they wouldn't do it or whatever. So I... Um, I think at some stage, I don't think it's actually the right thing to do to separate the supply of money um, from a government function, putting it in the hands of unelected people. To me, well, because and one of the things that happened is they they printed all of this money, and who did it? Who did it benefit? It benefited the banks and the risk takers who were exposed to bad loans who are over-leveraged. Mm. So they essentially bailed out the top end and uh, set a time bomb that just started to go off now, which was always going to happen. You know, that's a political decision to say that. Like, you know, it just uh, we just sit meekly back and say, oh, you know, central banks are separate and that's just the way it is. But I don't know that if it's such a good idea. So, um, so yeah, 
the actual interest rate and the actual inflation rate are still below where they need to be for what's considered normally a healthy environment economically. The problem is overinflated assets. Um, so I was just looking at a chart here which was just showing in terms of the last 12 months dwelling values. Brisbane's up 33%. Um, Adelaide, 30%. Hobart, 25%. Canberra, 25%. Sydney, 17 Melbourne, only 11 So national average, 19.8% increase in 12 months. So, um, so yeah, there's that. And I was just reading a thing um, about APRA. So APRA is different to the central bank. So APRA is, are the guys who regulate the behaviour of banks and superannuation funds, and they're um, they're supposed to ensure financial um, system stability. So they can restrict lending by banks to ensure that not too many borrowers take out massive loans that they may not be able to pay. And when the market slows, they can do the reverse. They can make it easier for lenders to lend money. So <clears throat> their role really is supposed to be to, to protect the system. So during the house boom um, in 2014, as part of its efforts to protect the system, they required banks to assess all home loans against a floor, um, F-L-O-O-R, of at least 7% as the interest rate or 2% above whatever rate was being paid by the borrower, whichever was the higher. So if somebody was borrowing at 3%, they said, okay, add 2% to that, you get to 5 it's still less than 7 Work off 7 You've got to make sure that this borrower can repay this loan and handle it at a rate of 7% as a minimum. Um, okay, if they're borrowing at ten percent, add two onto it. Well, I've got to be able to, I've got to be able to um, uh, service this loan at twelve percent. So uh, the floor was seven percent, or the prevailing interest rate plus two. And um, but so that was a rule they brought in in two thousand and fourteen. And um, but in two thousand nineteen, they got rid of the 7% um, aspect of that. Mm -hmm. And they just said, look at the actual interest rate and add 2.5%. And provided the lender can repay that, go ahead and lend them the money. So we had, of course, historically low interest rates where people might be borrowing at you know, honeymoon rates of 3 and 3.5%, 3 which might mean they're only then looking at 5.5% as the, as the amount that the bank had to sort of assume as the worst-case scenario. And so a lot of loans probably made that wouldn't have been given if the floor was 7%. So that was a dangerous move, arguably. So um, it's, maybe it seemed fine at the time, but... Um, Fast track to 2021, house prices have shot up and you've got banks being told by APRA, all right, whatever the interest rate is, add 2% and if they can service that, give them the loan. Um, so, um, 
So many people were being tested as to whether they could repay a 45 to 5.5% rate. Um, so they realised that was a problem and they cranked it up another half a percent. So arguably, APRA um, acted too slow. And, mm. yeah, so um, data shows that of 1 million new home loans written over the past two years, about 280,000 Australians have borrowed uh, um, six times their income or have a loan-to-value ratio of more than 90%. So, See, I, I, I remember getting my first mortgage and I swear they wouldn't lend me more than three times. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And if you were a couple, I think it was four times your combined income. Mm. And you tell kids that today and they don't they won't believe you, do they? <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Even in the news today there was a couple who um bought a house in Sydney for eight hundred and fifty grand in December. Right. And one's a nurse and the other one's a fitter and turner. So Yeah. Like that's pr- pr- pretty Ordinary incomes, I think. Yep. So, yeah. so it'll be inter- interesting times ahead. Um, I just feel sorry for anybody contemplating, a lot, you know, buying a property or who's just bought one. Um, mm. It would be tough. So, good luck with that decision. Um, good luck trying to buy a car. You know, we signed up for a new car back in August or September. Just a Toyota, not a Rav, but like the next one down. This. This tells you how little interest, dear listener, I have in cars. I can't even tell you the model of the car that we've bought. <laughs> I can tell you it's a Toyota. Can't tell you anything else. It's not. A, I know it's not the Rav. It's that sort of nick one down. What colour is it? It's, it's white with a black roof. <laughs> anyway, my wife and I were driving oh, a couple of weeks ago, and we thought, "What is going on with that car?" We rang up Toyota as we're driving, and said, hey, that car we signed up for and put a $1,000 deposit on back in August, September last year, what's the ETA? And they said, oh, your car has not been built yet. We can't give you an ETA because your car hasn't been built. um, My understanding is because there's a chip shortage, there are so many chips these days in cars, um, it's not a problem with building the car, it's the electronics to run the car. Yes. I, I heard this story, I don't know if it's true or not, which was it used to be back in the day when you buy a car they try and sell you extras, oh, you mm. know, electric windows or whatever was, you know, an mm. add-on. Now, or an extra camera, reversing camera or, in this, or whatever, bits and pieces, now they're actually saying to people, look, we're going to have to take off some of these accessories because there's just not enough chips. If you want your car sooner, well, what, what extras don't oh <laughs> what standard features don't you want? And when a chip becomes available, we'll plug it in when the car's two years old. How about that? So I don't know if that's true. I do hear that sort of thing. So, um, yeah. Uh, Alison in the chat room, our first home loan was 17%, but we only had to borrow 100K on combined income of 60K. Indeed. Yep. Those were the days, Alison, when um, some people had locked in at 13.5%. Uh, 
and and they were shown to be um, a great financial move because um, while the rest of us were paying 17%, there were people who had locked in at 13.5% and um, they were doing really quite well. <clears throat> yep. Um, Andrew in the chat room says, at one point my Toyota dealer told me they couldn't arrange a test drive but I could order one and they'd trade it in if I didn't like it. <laughs> That's right. They're all the same anyway, these cars. I, I have to hire a car when I go down to Sydney three or four times a year. And um, I'm sure they're all different, the ones I get, even though I don't look. Um, and they all drive the same. You just jump in and they're all, <laughs> all the same. <laughs> okay, that's cars. Um, gas, gas prices mm. have gone up. Do you know why? Uh, because we're selling know. it all offshore at a price that's favourable to the Japanese who are buying it, I think. Mm. It, for decades, we only sold gas within our own borders. We weren't sort of exporters of it. So it was only sort of when they opened up these Queensland gas fields that Australia became an exporter of gas. And basically, we then became part of the global market um, because they could sell it to overseas instead of us. So for decades, we're basically insulated from world prices because the local gas produced was only ever sold locally. It's sort of a recent thing to export it. So there's plenty of it around. It's just uh, price is the problem. Mm. Um, and then there's supposed to be a magic button that Malcolm Turnbull put in place that um, everybody's arguing about. That um, Victoria's talking about pressing it. What's the magic? Oh. What's the ma What's the magic <laughs> button? Um, basically, to channel some of the uh, export into our own market to stop the prices rising too high. Right. Yep. But the button isn't automatic, so it won't actually come in till January. And Next year. apparently, yeah. And apparently, <laughs> So, yeah, that's what all the politicians are arguing about. Not the gas supply, not the bigger issues, not the contest of the ideas, the button. Okay. And and if they press the button, it means they can tell the suppliers to charge Keep some a more lower. here. All oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Fair Keep enough. some more gas here. Yep. All right. We'll wait for um, Dictator Dan <laughs> to press the button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the chat room, there's uh, Don, T Don and Andrew is commenting there. Andrew and Alison, uh, say hello if you're in the chat room. Um, there was a thing about a Dr. Carrington who'd been speaking on the um, radio about the police union, and she made a comment which the head of the police union is sort of um, suing her for defamation. It was in relation to her comments surrounding... The union's attitude and, by inference, the commissioner's attitude to, I think, sexual abuse or something like that. Anyway, don't want to get into the specifics because don't want to be subject to a defamation claim myself. But um, you had a bit to do with Dr Carrington, Shay, or she was? Well, the she's the head of the School of Justice, which is where I'm getting my degree. So mm. I'm familiar with some of her research and she's specialised in um, her most of her research. Like she's done a heap of stuff. Hmm. But um, her, like, centrepiece of research is she went and um, did some great research on the um, female police stations in <laughs> South America. 
Right. And all the ways that um, the the way the police stations are set up is so that they're more likely to like receive victims versus ah. imprison people. Okay. And they've been around since the 80s, so she went over to investigate it and then see if that would inform the way that we deal with intimate partner violence and domestic violence here in Australia. Right. So she's actually an expert. Mm. She's levelled criticism, you know, widely mm. <laughs> to the government. She's, she's sort of the person you would go to if you wanted to discuss um, intimate partner violence and yeah. as a consequence of Hannah Clark's uh, inquest, I think this is how this all came about. Mm. So in South America uh, they have some female-only staffed police officers. Female, right. Uh, so you can, uh, a woman could go to a, to a particular police station knowing she's going to deal only with female officers. Yes. Right. Interesting yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. Seems mm. to be getting good outcomes. Right. Yep. So anyway, oh. um, you're a pro-union person, but um, you, um, you're not that keen on the police union generally. Is that what you're saying? You're sort of- no. What mm. I think is is that I think that is um, I thought police unions were supposed to protect the little guy. Mm-hmm. I don't really see that she's this um, monster. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and I and I think that uh, defamation suits have become a bit of a power play. Yeah. Yep. So I I would like to see the other unions act, perhaps have him deaffiliated from the ACTU or the QCU. Wow. There we go. Mm. Mm. Getting tough. You're, you're really turning into a good union then, but now. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> The thing about the, the thing about the left is they f- they fight other members on the left better than they do people on the right. Yeah, I thought the whole point of um, unions was jobs for the boys. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. the girls, as Peter mm. Dutton said yesterday. Tom, but the, yeah, the, so Tom, the warehouse guy says uh, talking about Dr. Carrington. I think uh, Trevor, I mentioned her to you yes. on the phone. She has all the answers to domestic violence that I see in court every day. She is right. Need to get her on the podcast. That's a good idea, Tom. Um, so yeah, because we were talking, Tom and I, about this is in response to where I was saying sometimes women make allegations in the family court, um, mm. which are questionable as to whether they're true or not. And uh, I think I mentioned my family circumstance of a you know cousin or whatever that I was aware of, and blah blah. So. Tom feels the same in his practice where he is, that uh, he sees a lot of allegations, some of which uh, it just don't seem right to him. So anyway, that would be good to get her on. Um, on that topic, actually, I will yeah, head over to the website, iamthisvelvetclub.com.au, because I've created a forum there, which I only did this afternoon, so I'm not even sure if it works properly, but... It was where you could suggest people to be interviewed and where you could also suggest uh, topics. So um, so I thought that might be a good place for people to do both. So in your leisure, head over there and, um, and have a look at that and hopefully it works and you can log in and, and suggest topics to talk about and people that we should interview because I do want to interview more people over the next couple of weeks. So... Uh, Alison says she saw a documentary on those female police stations, amazing results for women and girls. So there we go. Never heard of it before, but that sounds like 
a reasonable idea. I mean, this is uh, similar to the idea in Indigenous communities, for example, having police station mm. stacked with Indigenous coppers makes sense that they yeah. will um, communicate at the same level with the people in the community that they have. Mm. So, or, or they just get accused of being Uncle Tom's. Yeah, that's true. But worth giving it a go and seeing how that happens. So, okay. Uh, what else have we got here? Oh, I don't. Th- I don't know if I mentioned it on air, but um, uh, Alexander Downer we mentioned the other week, and you didn't know anything about <laughs> him, Shay. Because I was saying, what's he doing on Q and A? And I mentioned how he was um, opposition leader, and he had this strange photograph of wearing fishnet stockings. So yeah, that's on the screen there for those who'd never seen it before, and. That crueled his chances of ever being prime minister. Once that was on the front page, it was a very creepy-looking photograph. So, but um, yeah, that was Alexander um, Downer. I say don't don't kink shame people. Yeah, and well, okay, because um, I was a critical of Q and A for having um, Downer on and Gigi Foster and uh, Greg Sheridan and. I got a bit of uh, kickback from Dean Stretton, who said uh, he wrote a lengthy email, sort of um, pointing out a few things. And I guess my response would be: Look, you can have these people on once to give their view, but we've heard mm. the Gigi Foster view on lockdowns. We've heard the Greg Sheridan view on everything a thousand times. There just has to be other people out there. Um, you know, there's a habit on the ABC now of inviting Sky personnel onto ABC programs. Um, Kenny was on Q&A the other night. You know, you don't have to invite. What's le- Yeah, you don't have to invite and legitimise these people just because they're on a program on Sky or just because they're the foreign editor on The Australian doesn't make them interesting enough have on more than once. Thank you very much. We've heard their opinion. So, um, uh, so yeah, that was Alexander Downer. And um, uh, Joe, you found one about Britain's Conservative government announced a 25% windfall tax on the profits of oil and gas firms. And um, that's been introduced by a Conservative government. It is. Mm. So this was um, in response to raising fuel costs at the same time as oil companies are announcing record profits. Mm. And, and and they didn't have the level of protest seemingly that that Gene Reinhardt no. and was able to organise. Well, I, I don't know whether the Murdoch rags got up in arms, but. Um, yeah, it, it seems to have flown under the radar. Yeah. Maybe. Does it seem to you, Joe, in England that climate change is a left and right issue? Um, not certainly didn't used to be. I think it's become more because um, Maggie, having been a chemist, was very much, she, she read the science, recognised the truth of it back mm. in the 80s. Mm. And so, historically, the Conservative Party uh, 
at least paid lip service to it. Mm. That would make sense if such an important figure, um, if such an important figure as her was sort of recognised climate change, it would make it difficult mm. for others to follow. Yeah. You think it'd be kind of natural for people who, you know, like conserve, you would sort of imagine they would like to conserve the environment, like that it wouldn't be that (laughs) radical. The People's Democratic Republic of the Congo (laughs) is not necessarily democratic or of the people. The the Chinese Communist Party is not communist, Shay. (laughs) The Liberal Party are not liberal. It's invariably the opposite. If they've said it in their name, it's quite possibly the opposite. Uh, well, is there anything that has family or something in the title. Yes. True. Um, that's Christian. True. Look out. Yep. Yes. yep. He's, he's only interested in a certain type of family. Yeah. That's it. Yep. Hey, Qantas, Shay, you must be, well, what's your feelings on Qantas? Because I'll read a little bit of this article. Um, so Qantas employees have lifted the lid on what it's like to work for Qantas. And um, as we mentioned before, the transport union took Qantas to court in late 2020 when it was ruled that the airline had illegally sacked nearly 2,000 baggage handlers and ground staff and... Um, what happened was that um, workers say fractures began to appear with Qantas management because of its enterprise bargaining agreement. Qantas proposed changing conditions. Under their proposal, a smaller, cheaper A330 planes would be used for some international flights. But the current EBA says long-haul international staff cannot work on these aircraft because they don't have private cabins for workers to sleep in during the shift and rest. So um, in March, um, Qantas confirmed it had struck an agreement with workers over the new EBA, but the workers told the Daily Mail that they felt they had no choice um, because they were warned that if they rejected the new EBA, Qantas would have the current agreement torn up and the employees would be back on the government's award system and would see their pay slashed. So instead of being on $47 an hour, they would be on $26 an hour. So um, so they basically folded under the threat of that. And Shay, airline cabin crew on a long-haul flight on an A330 have to pull a tarp over some chairs and try and Sleep. camp on it. That sounds awful. Mm. Do you ever do long haul? No, I was just due to start long haul when COVID kicked off, so I was. Mm. I never got there. Mm. It sounds like I wouldn't have made it. <laughs> <laughs> I can sleep basically anywhere, but oh, I think that's probably testing it. And the other thing is, like, you need your privacy. Yeah. Um, if passengers see you, they ask you for stuff, and it doesn't matter if you're laying down. Yeah, you can be very uncomfortable. Up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they have shown no mercy. So I don't. I like 
yeah, I don't really know what else to do. I keep thinking maybe I should start a petition or. Yep. Yep. Should I? But, yeah, it's just like I, 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 it just keeps getting worse and I just don't know how to make it stop. Yeah. Um, except just, leave the business. Hmm. Just everybody's leaving a business. Like Qantas is recruiting ground crew again after sacking 2,000 of them. Yep. Can't keep their ground crew. It's just a classic case of shock doctrine, which is where, you know, we had the shock of the pandemic, we had airlines not flying, and during that time you can bring in changes that you just couldn't bring in normal times. Like if there was normal flights occurring and you tried to make that change, the crew could say, we're all on strike, not doing it, grind it to a halt and done and dusted. But in this shock doctrine sort of method when things are in flux and the union and collective bargaining doesn't have the same power, these things get snuck in. So it's a classic example of it. Well, that's what the Labor Party has promised the unions it will do is maybe not bring back strikes, but um, some of these protections for businesses have to go because Mm. they make it too hard for collective bargaining. Mm. And the other question is, if the award is $26 an hour, but the normal rate is 47 an hour, uh, why is the award not matching yeah, industry rates? Yeah, the, the award is is just a like a minimum wage rate, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. people would earn on a stop-go sign, I guess. Um, oh, so it's not an award for that particular role. I think it's just a general. I think it's just a no, general award, award. A general basic minimum wage type amount that applies across a whole bunch of industries. I think. Right, because I certainly know uh, years ago when I was casual worker, people were talking about the awards and the minimum rates mm. and arguing as to which award we should be on. Mm. Mm. Because my understanding was it was for a yeah a group of similar jobs would all be on a certain award. Yeah, mm. I don't know what that award is, but um. the um, bargaining agreements you do have to be better off overall. That's the mm-hmm. big test. Yeah, but for awards, I think it can be pretty basic and just minimal. Yeah, there's no requirement for to, for it to keep up. Yeah. So. Um, Okay, so that's Qantas um, making life difficult for their staff now. Just in the chat room, by the way, um, just going back to Alexander Dowden and his fishnet stockings, Broman said, um, I don't know whether Keating the Musical ever made it to Brisbane, but it had an absolutely hysterical segment devoted to Downer and his fishnets. Um, Jill says, yes, the musical did make it and Alexander and his fishnets stole the show. And... <laughs> Roman said, um, when I went, those of us sitting in the aisle seats were encouraged to spank the bum of the actor playing Downer as he sashayed to the stage. <laughs> I've never laughed so much in my life. Uh, and Jill said, it was brilliant. Uh, I recall one of the audience got his head buried in Downer's chest hair. There we go. Sounds like Rocky Horror. It does, Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, what did I see the other night? Was nine to five the musical? My wife got some free tickets from somebody. Mm-hmm. Don't go. Oh, well, guys, really? don't guys don't go. I, 
wasn't that great. You, you mean it, it, it lacked Dudley Parton's assets? It, she actually is on there. She's like on this video. So she appears okay. quite regularly on this video screen. So it's, it's um, if you get some free tickets, go. But I wouldn't spend a lot of money on um, Yeah, nine to five. Right. Um, where are we? I just want to go back to um, – oh, so I am – uh, Labor Party member, as you know, but I've never attended a meeting. Um, but I got an email, and they wanted to do a bit of a um, a bit of a meeting on Thursday night about rehashing what happened in the federal election because in this area uh, it went green rather than uh, red. So they want to figure out what went wrong and what they can do next time. And so I sent an email saying can't make it on Thursday but his, for my two cents worth is that people voted for the Greens because they're progressive not just on climate change but on other issues as well uh, such as secularism and said to Johnny Bush who'd sent the email, um, look, in the state election the Greens I am sure are going to be in favour of getting rid of religious instruction lessons and that's a, prog- you know, Labor Party needs to earn some progressive brownie points um, and you don't want that point of difference. So my court case has given you a reason to get rid of religious instruction and you should do it. So I haven't had a response to that yet. But anyway, um, any Labor Party members in Queensland who are getting emails, I suggest you do something similar or contact your Labor Party member and say, hey, um, if you're wondering what you need to do in the state election, you need some progressive brownie points, and this is a classic thing of what you can do. So just on uh, briefly, Robin's case, so we're just waiting to see if the DPP, I think, would have got some material from the judge by now, and they're probably looking at it. But we've had some great donations uh, since last time. Thank you, Jeremy, Patrick, Ricky Dodds, Kieran, Scott the Velvet Glove, uh, Melangian, Andrew M., Mara Motts, We Rules, Jeff T, Mark C, Paul Waper, extremely generous Paul, thank you very much. Uh, Richard, uh, mate from Squash, David C, uh, Janelle made another donation and Blake as well. So to all of you people, thank you very much. If you haven't already and you want to help Robin out, go on to NoosaTempleOfSatan.org. There's a PayPal link there. If you prefer not to give PayPal a cut and want to do a direct deposit, then email me and I'll send you the direct deposit details as well. So um, because we're still short of where we need to be um, for what we know is going to happen. So that's great. Thank you to those people. And just, Joe, you mentioned on um, the booths and yes, how as the booths move further away from the centre of Brisbane, they got less labour, less green and more liberal as you went out. Mm-hmm. And you found this great link, which I'll put in the show notes, which um, you can just go onto this website and it's an interactive map where you can basically just hover over an electorate. So at the moment I've just got my um, – actually, maybe I can just zoom in a bit more. Uh, yeah, I can. So I've got this over on the electorate of Ryan where I am in and – now, um, where were you, Shay? You were at um, Barden. Barden. Let me just see. Tawong Uniting Church. Uh, 
Rainworth State School. That was you? Yep. Yep. So in that electorate, uh, the swing was 11.96%. And wow. as opposed to a booth, a booth further out in um, the Brookfield Uniting Church, um, where it's a Liberal booth. So uh, you can see towards the centre of the city, green, and then as you get further out in the electorate of Ryan, it turns blue. So, um, so yeah, if you want to look at your actual booth and how it voted, you can um, you can get the details. Hey, look at the gap. So uh, let me just go, let me just find this. Hang on a second. Uh, I think it should be able to give me the whole thing. Hang on. Uh, yeah, I think you're on. I think you're on all at the moment. Am I? Um, anyway, if you're interested in your booth in your district anywhere in Australia, you can go on there and see how the different booths in your electorate voted, and it's quite interesting to see. And sort of matches up with what you were saying, Joe, about um, how as you move further out. Um, yeah, I mean, if you pick uh, one notion, yes, there's an area just just yeah. outside of Rockhampton, yeah, that seems to be, <laughs> yeah, seems to be the darkest purple of the whole country. All right, another black mark on it's a black mark on it's a pink mark on Rockhampton. Yeah, so yeah, you can pick whatever you party like, and yeah, and it's got I, the exact numbers. See where their biggest support is. Yeah. So there's that. Um, in the news is an Indigenous voice to, um, to Parliament. And I'm still struggling with this one, dear listener. Convince me otherwise. But I, I find myself agreeing with, Jed, with Greg Sheridan in The Australian <laughs> that didn't give you pause. It certainly did. <laughs> you know, but a I can't. clock is right twice a day. Yep. Uh, his reasoning I don't like at times, but his overall conclusion, I have to agree with Greg Sheridan in The Australian on an Indigenous voice. So um, here we go. What did he say? In summary, he says... <laughs> Peter Dutton is the right choice to lead the Liberal Party. This is certainly a time for a pragmatic Conservative. However, as leader, there are some questions of principle he and his party should not dodge. Perhaps the most important this term is that they should oppose in principle the move to establish in the Constitution an elected voice to Parliament exclusively for Indigenous people. Dutton is right to wait for the details of Labor's proposal, but people should make the in-principle argument against racial classifications in the Constitution. The main reason to oppose the voice is not conservative but liberal, the basic principle that race and ethnicity should have no place in civic status. This is part of the tradition of Christian universalism. This is where our, our reasoning differs here. That race and ethnicity cannot establish any kind of religious hierarchy. St Paul declared, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. That was a religious statement with profound civic consequences. I hate how these guys just have to grab bits and pieces out of Christian mythology and say that it's the basis of 
Western civilization. It's very Jordan Peterson-ish. We'll get on to Jordan Peterson later. Mm. So, so totally ignoring the, um, what was it, slaves obey your masters. And totally ignoring that lots of non-Christian cultures have become quite civilised. Thank you very much. Uh, in Australia, Aboriginal people were dispossessed and suffered terrible ongoing discrimination and disadvantage. I have benefited from the wisdom of Aboriginal friends. I admire and esteem Aboriginal cultures. Um, I wish Aboriginal people every advancement and success, but I do not want racial categories added to the Constitution. The argument that First Nations status is about culture, not race, is disingenuous. If it were true, then anyone could gain First Nations status by adopting the culture and anyone could lose it by abandoning the culture. Um, one of the most unattractive aspects of this debate is the way advocates intimidate opponents into silence by accusing them of racism or lack of empathy or a range of lesser sins. No one, but no one, enjoys being accused of racism by a voice advocate. It's an extremely career-limiting experience, yet many advocates of the supposed mechanism of harmony will fling the vilest labels at people who simply have the temerity to disagree with them. So let's be clear about a founding principle. It cannot be racist to insist that there be no racial distinctions in civic status. And it is entirely possible to operate from goodwill and with full knowledge and still disagree with the constitutional proposal. I agree with him there. Um, uh, it talks about uh, Malcolm Turnbull pointed out in his memoir, the biggest proportion of uh, population of Aboriginal people lives in Western Sydney. Um, how is it that somebody identifying as Indigenous who lives in, say, Parramatta should be meaningfully consulted about policies specifically directed towards a remote Aboriginal community in Arnhem Land? Um, goes on. Uh, talking about Turnbull, he recalled his statement after the Cabinet decision, our democracy is built on the foundation of all Australian citizens having equal civic rights, all being able to vote for, stand for and serve in either of two chambers in our national parliament. A constitutionally enshrined additional representative assembly for which only Indigenous Australians could vote for or serve in is inconsistent with this fundamental principle. And I have to agree. And I think um, I think you should be able to... Uh, I think it's dangerous to divide us up based on race. And I think if Dutton runs on that... Um, if Labor introduces a voice, an uh, Indigenous voice, and Dutton goes against it, pick up a lot of votes. A lot of people won't be happy about it. So, um, uh, he's done some interesting things that make it seem like he's not going to oppose it. So Dutton, for instance, he yeah, he mm. didn't appoint Jacinta Price as Indigenous Affairs, which he's openly opposed to it. Mm. Pointed that he appointed somebody who actually is for it. And they were discussing today about how that may be a signal. Right. Uh, but he hasn't committed either way which way he's going. Mm. Yeah. Did, did you see his reason why he walked out of the apology, by the way? Um, yeah, because we <laughs> we haven't been good enough or something. Yes, it was. Uh, yeah. He, he claims it was because he'd been regional copper and he'd seen the rates of IPV in Indigenous communities, and therefore he felt that 
yeah, really, there were other more more pressing things. Was his argument? Yes, he felt that these other things hadn't been fixed, so it was improper to have a voice until these other matters had been fixed. That's true. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was his argument. So, um, I'd just like to go on the record because I was talking mm-hmm. to my older sister today, and she just wanted to say. She mm. wanted to make sure that I said that there's a range of a range of voices. So mm. not every Indigenous person is for the Uluru Statement. Not every mm. white person is against it. So it's going to be an interesting um, debate for the next few years. Linda Burney is all out talking about collaboration. Mm. But I'd like to be on the record saying as a possibility, it just seems really beautiful that we would consult Indigenous people on improving their conditions and lives. Yeah, and we should consult <laughs> people about improving their lives. Yeah. But saying one should... group's got a special right, I was going to say, or say it's been enshrined in the constitution, uh, is another matter entirely. Yeah, but that's to create the permanency, isn't it? Because we did have a consultative group, and then the Liberal Party, John Howard, chucked them out. Um. So that's why we need it in the constitution, so that it's permanent. Well, so that it's having it in the constitution just means that there will be people permanently who are consulted, but it doesn't mean you end up with a permanently good solution. So, who are these people, and what would they know? Is, um, yeah, got to be worked out definitely. Yeah. Just, just basically lining people up on race and saying, "Okay, you can do this. You lot over there, you can't do it. It's it's not the solution." Um, so, um, do you have a counter offer? Um, well, we've already got Indigenous people in the Parliament. Yeah, I mean, what are they doing if not in cabinet meetings or whatever, and in caucus, giving views about? the community that they know. I mean, that's, aren't they there? So aren't they giving their opinions and participating? So Yeah, but their opinions are a constitution. (laughs) That's what I would say. So Hmm. um, what in the chat room, um, there's one comment there. Uh, what was that one? That's watch a out. shocker, Mama. Bring it with me. What, what's that? Uh, Bromman, watch out, Trevor. Next thing you know, you'll be into conspiracy theories. Uh, thanks, Bromman. Um, what else have we got uh, in the chat room? Let me see. Um, uh, you know, I did a bunch of episodes with the Twelfth Man, and this is ones where actually we agreed on Indigenous matters. Which again, I'm, I'm agreeing with the twelfth man and agreeing with Greg Sheridan. So I recognise, and I'm double checking all of the all of my understanding here, but I still arrive at the same conclusion. So um, it's just not a good idea um, to divide people based on race. So anyway, um, I think that's going to be an interesting one over the next period of time. What what Lee's saying. Uh, that a lot of Indigenous people will consider the people in Parliament coconuts. Yep. And I think the same would be a thought of any um, Indigenous voice to the Parliament Mm. would also be considered as sellouts or traitors. Yeah. Mm. Do you know if you're a true... Sorry, go on. 
I, I was going to say, uh, you know, realistically, anyone who would be appointed is almost certainly going to be uh, somebody educated who's been through the university system, is going to be a respected society member. Mm. And, and therefore isn't necessarily going to reflect the average indigenous person anyway. Yes. Yep. Yep. They haven't been living uh, in that, yeah. That's the big, it's going to be the big risk. They haven't been living at rough on the streets of Redfern or rough in the bush in Arnhem Land or, yeah. So by the very yeah, so, nature. Yep. Yeah. I'm just picking people by their skin colour. You really need to pick from the people that they're supposed to be representing. Mm. Like we did that series or we had those discussions about uh, Dark Emu and mm-hmm. um, written by Pasco, Bruce, Bruce Pasco, Pasco. Yeah. yeah, Indigenous Man, although that's disputed by some, but Indigenous Man. And then we had the counter-claim, the counter-argument to that by um, as anthropologists and I went through and they were not Indigenous, but to me they demonstrated a far better understanding of Indigenous life than what Bruce Pascoe did. So, um, and, you know, I explained in those episodes why that seemed to be the case. So, um, yeah, let's just get the right solutions and by all means consult widely and but just having a hard rule about People with special privileges don't like it. I mean, if you're a true lefty, we've just finished talking about property and how it's just outrageously expensive and how it's unfair on younger generations, particularly if their parents are not wealthy and cannot lend them, you know, can't sell an investment property to help kick kick them off, if you like. And... And really, if you're a real lefty when it comes to property rights, you would be thinking, you know what, inheritance tax. You know, mm-hmm. once, once you've once you die, you sort of there's got to be a big inheritance tax, and we don't really want a a perpetuating aristocracy based on land ownership, where people who and families who already own it are the only ones capable of buying it in future. And there's a bit of a a landed aristocracy feel to the whole Indigenous argument on land rights. We were here first and we get to keep it all and... Um, but, and but they don't because it's collective. We, no, but no, in- not you white guys, just we blackfellas. Like if there's a but, mining but I'm, lease I'm- on this, it's going to go to our blackfella tribe, not to your whitefella tribe. So... It's collective in I mean, a sense, but it's also um, ruling out its other groups. True. It, my my understanding is mm. that um, in the Aboriginal areas, they're not actually allowed to own the land. It's mm. held collectively by uh, the group, mm. uh, and that means that they can't mortgage. It, or they can't borrow against it. Mm. An individual can't. Mm. And, and that effectively traps them in poverty has been one of the arguments. Yes. Yep. Yep. So. So the reverse is also true. Yeah. It's, it's a nowhere um, land kind of ownership as well that traps you mm. into it as well. Yeah. There's a whole host of 
things that come out of it that aren't the best. So uh, that's a can of worms. Good luck mm. um, for people trying to solve that one. Um, just in terms of Peter Dutton, just while we're on it, uh, there was a, an article in the Sydney Morning Herald and the, the title of it was, Peter Dutton has the worldview of a Queensland cop. It's in our interest to give him a go. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Jack- not a tautology? Jacqueline Maley, <laughs> columnist and senior journalist. I don't know if she was responsible for the headline or some sub-editor was, but Peter Dutton is the <laughs> worldview of a Queensland cop. It's in our interest to give him a go. There is nothing special about Queensland cops that makes their worldview any better than anybody else's. And there's a culture in Queensland cops in certain areas, not all of them, uh, but there's nothing special about Queensland cops that means that we have to give them a go. Let's get that out of the system. Um, yeah, and Mel, you can weigh in on that one if you are there in the chat room, Mel. Um, uh, still on Dutton, just uh, headlines from the shovel. Um, having only been in Parliament for 21 years, Australians haven't had the chance to see the real me yet by Peter Dutton and... Gentler, kindler Dutton to insult minority groups more affectionately from now on. (laughs) I I did see him getting very upset that he was compared to Voldemort. Yes. Um, Because, of course, he's never insulted any of his fellow parliamentarians. No, Mm. exactly. Yeah. Um, Uh, Did you see the friendly Geordies? About? Uh, Managed to get one of uh, Crab or Goyle, and I can't remember which actor it was, uh, recording a message to Peter Dutton saying he was sorry that he'd been outed as our Dark Lord. Oh, really? One of the actors? <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> no, I didn't see that. It, uh, it's a classic. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, no, I didn't see that. Um, so, oh, there was an article here, which is from Crikey, basically saying that Dutton, in an interview on the Bolt Report, Sky News, was really looking to ignite a culture war, talking about what teachers are teaching in classrooms and how it was all very woke and one of the things that the Liberal Party will be doing is making sure that any curriculum in future doesn't have this crazy critical race theory wokeism that the left is wanting to uh, brainwash our children with. So really trying to bring in that USA style of um, culture wars into our education system Hopefully that doesn't yeah. get any traction. We're not having any of that sort of thing up here. No. Does so he what's he worried about? Supposedly that our teachers are are basically teaching critical race theory and and woke ideas mm. and and teaching kids to be gay. Leftist, yeah, <laughs> leftish ideas. Um, not enough religion. Yeah. So that sort of stuff. Um, Hopefully that doesn't get any traction. Um, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard. Joe, you were actually into this. Go on. Yeah, I watched watched the trial. Um, I followed a a live stream with a bunch of US lawyers who were commenting about the, um, the trial. And a couple of them came in completely, um, had not seen any of the information. 
So it was interesting watching them. And, the, and one of them was very, very balanced, uh, was giving the benefit of the doubt to every possible piece of information that came up. And realistically, about halfway through the trial, three quarters of the way through the trial, he was just completely disbelieving of everything that she said. Right. Said, you know, there, there may be a kernel of truth in there, but she has been so blatant with her storytelling on the stand mm. that we can't believe anything she says. Mm. Um, and uh, I don't think they were particularly surprised by the verdict. Mm. And, the, and the one um, the one count that found against him, or rather his lawyer, was where some very specific claims were made and weren't proven. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then uh, this particular lawyer who'd been completely balanced at the beginning listened to the audio that came from the Gold Coast when his finger got chopped off mm-hmm. uh, and said, you know, this this just doesn't relate to what she said on the stand. Right. If, if nothing else, she perjured herself on the stand. Right. Now, lots of people on Twitter were sort of saying this is a terrible result for victims of sexual abuse and whatever. And really, it's one of those cases where unless you sat down and watched the whole goddamn thing, how can you form any opinion as to what's gone on here, really? So, And, and I, th- I think, no, um, having read the comments, having read a lot of people, mm. a lot of abuse survivors said none of this none of this rings true to me mm. she just does not come across um you know if i'd ever spoken to my abuser the way she spoke to him uh he'd have beaten the living shit out of me in fact she was asked on the stand you know you texted this photo of johnny in some uh, unflattering position to your friend weren't you worried that he'd find out she went no why would i be worried mm. there were uh, you know uh, so a lot of abuse survivors said we don't believe her mm. uh, we think that you know he was the victim and and there's lots of claims of misogyny or they were just fangirling over johnny depp and people were insulted by that abuse survivors were insulted by that mm. saying this has got nothing to do with this this is this is listening to the audio tapes and hearing some very very disturbing things people were saying that the the audio tapes were triggering bringing back horrible memories, and it was her abusing him. Mm. So there you go, dear listener. Don't form an opinion on the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial until you're prepared to sit through at least 40 hours of testimony, and then you might be able to say something about it. What was the basis for having it live streamed? My Facebook was absolutely bombarded, and I had zero interest, probably Uh, more like totally repulsed by the whole fucking spectacle, (laughs) frankly, and... And even little fucking Johnny Depp Car- Pirates of the Caribbean things coming off my Facebook. It was hard not for me to get, like, obviously suspicious. Mm. Um, the reason it was live streamed was because the UK trial had been selectively reported in the media. Mm. Uh, and certainly Depp's uh, team believed that had it not been live streamed, it would have, again have been selectively reported. Mm. Um, and no matter the verdict, it would have been spun by yeah. Read the Guardian articles. There are there are a lot of op eds have come out in the last week about how it's all misogyny and how the jurors were running off every night to look at uh, TikTok and mm. um, hard to avoid. Yeah, but um, 
basically there was a narrative in the media that man bad, woman good, uh, and they are unwilling to back down from that position despite the outcome. Mm. Well, my algorithm got it wrong because it wasn't telling me that at all. Johnny Depp's a hero. Amber Heard's uh, a slut. Yeah, yeah. So like, that, that that was the discussion on social media, but the mainstream media was definitely not saying that. Mm. All right. Mm. Well, anyway, I think it's good that they're divorced. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> it, it was it was not healthy. No. No, indeed, it was not healthy. Um, now, what else have we got here? Um, just for just for laughs, let's play a little bit of. Um, George W. Bush say. Contrast. Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Right. Anyway, uh. that's that's right. <laughs> that was a classic, wasn't it? Rally, rally against Russia. <laughs> I watched that like Bush. fifteen times, and it's still fun. He, he wasn't the sharpest tool, even when he was president. <laughs> the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal <laughs> invasion of Iraq—I mean, of Ukraine—that. Sums it up. <laughs> I, I don't think he was the only person who um, uh, got together to launch the war on Iraq, though. Oh, he's, well, it's pretty much, well, it was right. It was three people. It was him, him it was and John Howard Tony and, and Tony Blair. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a slip up. Um, Coalition of the drilling. Yeah. Just for fun as well, um, while I'm getting out video clips, let's get this one as well. Any Jordan Peterson fans out there still? So let's find this one. Uh, it's while since I've had it in here. Let's see how this one goes. Hang on a sec. The Bible is true in a very strange way. It's true in that... It provides the basis for truth itself. And so it's like a meta-truth. Without it, there couldn't even be the possibility of truth. And so maybe that's the most true thing. The most true thing isn't some truth per se. It's that which provides the precondition for all judgments of truth. I can't see any holes in that argument. And I can't see any holes in it from a scientific perspective either. Because I think we do know well enough now as scientists that the problem of deriving ethical direction from the collection of facts is an intractable problem. There's too many facts. There's an infinite number of facts. They do not provide an unerring guide for action. They can't. There's too many of them. They have to be prioritized. And as soon as they are prioritized, well, then you're in the ethical domain. Are there, are there any Jordan Peterson fans left out there? He's gone completely nuts. And... Anyone in the sort of rational, secular world who sort of liked him and didn't understand that, in fact, he's always just reverting back to um, 
Well, there's a, there's a podcast called uh, Guru Something or Other. I'll find it. I'll look it up on my phone. Um, uh, Chris Kavanagh does his podcast, <clears throat> and he says every Jordan Peterson lecture is basically references to psychology, finger-waving about how we don't really know something, references to myth and literature, complaints about the modern left, crying about something, comparison to animal, <laughs> conclusion, Jesus and the Bible, how's ultimate truth? And it's true. That's that's essentially what he does. So, um, so yeah, he's, he's in quite an unhealthy state, Jordan Peterson. When you mm. see him physically, he's really not looking well. And well, he, he did recover from his addiction, so did, I don't know yeah. what that took out of Well, just looking at him when you see pictures of him, he doesn't look that great. So, um, also, do you um, follow golf at all, Shay? Are you a golfer? Any chance? <laughs> Joe, are you a golfer at all? I, I believe, who was it said, golf is a good walk ruined? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, so my question, if there's any Jordan Peterson fans out there, would be, are there any Greg Norman fans still out there? Because he's involved with this sort of rival golf tour that is basically being funded with Saudi money. And when told or when questioned about, you know, is this really a good thing to be associating with people like the Saudis um, and just taking their dirty money, uh, um, Greg Norman on the Saudi-approved murder of Jamal Khashoggi said, We've all made mistakes. <laughs> uh, but that is sports people's appeal, isn't it? That they'll take the money look yep. the other way for some. Yeah, no, I was going to not- say, yeah. David Icke was a footballer. David Icke was a footballer, was he? But there's a, yeah. There's a, uh, who's David Icke? Was he like the Nazi? Yeah, Nazi. Um, hey, he's the lizard people. Oh, lizard people. Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. As the, the royal family of lizard people, you can oh. see because yeah, you can see their third eyelid shut. Was he a professional? <laughs> was he a professional footballer? Was he? He was a footballer, and then he went completely off the rails. He's a big conspiracy theorist. Yeah, yeah. You don't rely on athletes for general advice. Um, there's a guy, Gavin Scott, on Twitter talking about Norman Greg Norman, and this comment said. Let him who hasn't organised a team to murder someone using a bone saw to dismember the victim cast the first stone. <laughs> and, yes, he probably is a great friend of W because um, wasn't W Bandar Bush? He was given a nickname by the Saudi royal family. What? He was such a good friend. Bandar Bush? No, I, really? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, I mean, um 9-11, the day after, there was only one plane flew in the United States right. and it was a private jet flying all of the Saudi royals out of the United States. That'd be right, yeah. In other news, the Queen, of course, is uh, not as strong as she used to be. Some of her duties have been taken over by Prince Charles and uh, he announced um, the government's top priority is to help ease the cost of living for families with a promise to level up opportunity in all parts of the country. And he said all this while sitting on a golden throne. So <laughs> he, he's, he's going to provide free homeopathy for everyone in the country. Yeah, indeed. Um, if you thought Anthony were- Albanese has appointed a republic minister, 
Is there one? Is there a Republic minister? Is there? A yeah, minister apparently for the... appoint. Yeah, right. Apparently appointed one the same day as he honoured the jubilee. Ah, <laughs> tricky. Ah. Managed it. Okay, I think he'll do something about Julian Assange. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. I was listening to a great podcast this morning with um, Peter Grest, the woman who was kept in an Iranian prison for 800 days, and um, Peter Grest is one other. Oh, yes, this man who has his daughter and his three grandchildren trapped in Syria. They were forced across the border by her now dead husband. Yep. So anyway, it was very, um, very interesting. It was on um, Radio National. I basically, only listen to ABC now. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was really good, and they all sound because uh, they were just saying that um, Australia doesn't actually have a duty for consular assistance, and maybe we need to look at that. Mm. Uh, we're not obliged to do anything if you get in trouble overseas. Right. And perhaps that needs um, reviewing. We, that we need to write is, that in the constitution, shall we? I, I, I thought we we have a duty unless you're a dual national. No, we uh. do not have a duty. Uh. Uh. Yes, we do not have a duty to you. So that's why there's you know some dealing, right, and wheeling because we uh, and I sort of talked about the power power dynamics when you're in prison but julian's brother was also on the um radio Mm -hmm. on that interview show and he was saying he's really really pleased by anthony albanese's response right yeah it sounds like the sort of thing that you just do via back channels where you yes would pick up the phone and ring the president and say love your work but hey i've got an issue here just give up and send him let him come back home it wouldn't be that hard so I would imagine that's what's happening in the background. I'd be very mm. surprised if it's not. So mm. fingers crossed for Julian. Watley the Wizard says Bandar means friend in Pushtu or one of those languages like you, Watley. Um, Tom the Warehouse guy said David, I, David Eek, Ike is underrated. <laughs> well, <laughs> David Ike, but, but I, I think it's better pronounced as Icky. Icky, right. Okay. Um, what else have I got here? Just we talked about Qantas before um, Amazon. So Jeff Bezos, Amazon, they're looking at having an internal messaging app for their employees. But it was basically revealed that the app was going to block any messages that might um, pertain to them organising labour unions within the Amazon uh, workplaces. So there was going to be a word monitor used on the messaging app. And um, so words like slave labour, prison, um, would be those messages wouldn't get through. And, and this, there's a whole list of words that were basically going to be um, banned from this messaging app and not put through if you happen to have accessibility, vaccine, living wage, representation, unfair, favouritism, rate, slave, slave labour, master, concerned, freedom, (laughs) restrooms, robots, trash, committee, coalition, ethics, fairness, diversity, injustice, grievance. Got a message with any of those words and a bunch of others. Uh, It's not going to get through the... 
the uh, all-pervasive Amazon messaging app. So uh, I'd say this is concerning, but that would be blocked. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, I love it. Whenever Jeff Bezos does this sort of stuff, it yeah. always makes me think, wow, unions really must work. Yeah. And I think Joyce, from, Quant- Joyce from Qantas is probably looking at that and going, what a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, b- 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 Starbucks yes. have recently unionised yes. yeah. in the US mm. and apparently more places are looking at it, but Starbucks did their damnedest to stop them. Yes. Yep. So there is a bit of a resurgence for, mm-hmm. for unions in America. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I've kind of got to the end of where I wanted to get. It was a quick one this week. You know what I'm finding is that um, there hasn't been a lot of news, really, in the last couple of weeks. So um, just in day-to-day stuff, I don't think, while this new government's trying to work out what it's doing. So anyway, next week I will rustle up something, maybe an interview or maybe something else, but we'll see. Um if you've been in the chat room, thanks for listening. Bit of a quicker one this week, but um, yeah, we'll talk to you next week. Bye for now. Good night. It's a good night from him. The best, like all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast you'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. Just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less but in any event you can subscribe there if you don't like the idea of a regular subscription the website has a link to a paypal donation so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again so there you go it'd be good to uh spread the word get a few more listeners and that way look if we ended up getting more listeners and more money we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes provide some more content so it's up to you If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.